Student Radio Master Donati 107.5 FM. You were listening there to Frederick Abbas. Thanks very much to Moza Musica for letting us using their tunes. If you're wondering, they also play these tunes on Saturday 8 to 9 p.m. on RTV 107.5 FM. But today we've got the European Careers Association in the studio. Elisa? Yes, of course. Hi, welcome again. Um, this is, I think, our fourth or fifth time in the radio. So, welcome. Um, today I'm here again with the Blue and Yellow members, um, with Federico and Sofia. So Federico, do you want to introduce yourself firstly? Hi, yes, uh, I'm Federico. I'm uh, 20 years old from uh, Italy and uh, I've been studying uh, European studies uh, here in Maastricht uh, since 2020. And uh, I've joined ECA, I guess, in September and I've uh, remained a passive member after I've decided to join the blog uh, Blue and Yellow and I'm very happy to be a member. Perfect, thank you very much. And I'm also accompanied be here by Sofia. Yes, hi everyone. Um, I'm Sofia, an Italian student like Federico. Uh, I come from Torino and I also joined um, the Blue and Yellow team with Federico in uh, February and since then have been writing articles about European foreign policy and I hope you will read one of our articles soon. Mm-hmm. Perfect, thank you very much and my name is Elisa and I'm the Editress-in-Chief of the Blue and Yellow blog within the European Careers Association Maastricht. 
And as you may know, ECA Maastricht is a non-profit organization uniting students who aspire for a career within the European Union, also in the Council of Europe related NGOs and companies. And the blue and yellow blog that I am the head of is a blog for students by students that provides information on EU initiatives and legislation. So like Sofia said, make sure to check our articles out. There's a lot of interesting content there. But today we will be focusing on the migration, migration flows and migration policy within the EU. So I want to give the floor back to Sofia to introduce the topic briefly. Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, as probably some of you know, Russia's aggression against Ukraine has led to one of the Europe's largest migrant crises of the 21st century. Um, according to, to the United Nations, migration from Ukraine has been the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe uh, since the Second World War. Um, thousands of citizens have fled bombarded cities in the country and more than uh, 7.5 million Ukrainians have left their home country and sought asylum in the European Union. Uh, most, half of them, almost half of them have moved to Poland. So the European community um, should act fast and effectively to counteract uh, this humanitarian disaster. And given the circumstances, it's necessary to ask ourselves, what is the role of the European Union in dealing with this migration crisis? And that's exactly what we'll be focusing about in the next section. So stay with us to learn more about the topic. Together till I know you better Darling, darling, now what do you say?
Welcome back. You're listening to Student Radio Maastricht and I'm Elisa from ECA together with Federico and Sofia, the members of Blue and Yellow Blog. We're going to talk about migration and migration policy in the EU. So now we are going to focus on the current situation, the number of migrants coming uh, from Ukraine, the demographics and generally we're going to talk about how the situation looks like now. So Sofia, do you want to tell us some, something about this topic? Yes, sure. Thank you. Um, so, as we said before, an ongoing refugee crisis began uh, in Europe in late February 2022 after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, more than 7.5 million refugees have left Ukraine, while an estimated 8 million people have been displaced uh, within the country. Um, approximately one quarter of the country's total population had left their homes in Ukraine by the 20th of March. And the 90% of Ukrainian refugees are women and children. Um, also, by 24 March, more than half of all children in Ukraine had left their homes, of whom a quarter had left the country. Um, so as I said before, the invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II, and its aftermath is the first of its kind in Europe since the Yugoslav Wars in the 1990s and is the largest refugee crisis of the 21st century, with the highest refugee flight rate globally. So actually, can you tell us where and how many people left Ukraine as a result of this war? Yeah, so the vast majority of refugees um, directly entered neighboring nations to the west of Ukraine. Poland has received 3.9 million refugees from Ukraine. Uh, other countries neighboring Ukraine that have received refugees are Romania, Moldova, Hungary and Slovakia. Um, some refugees then moved further west to other European countries and uh, also to a lesser extent elsewhere. However, um, people know that most are likely to stay in Poland and other countries in Central Europe because there are tight labor markets, affordable cities and a pre-existing diaspora have made those countries more appealing uh, for Ukrainians who find options um, better in Europe's West. Mm, so how do people choose their destination and why, why, do, why do this pattern of migration flow? Uh, yes, thank you, Elisa. So <clears throat> first of all, I would like to point out that uh, it's not an unprecedented phenomenon of seeing uh, mass migration from Ukraine. Uh, it was different though in the past, it was mainly economic migration, while now we're seeing refugees, so uh, forced migration. But um, uh, this mass outflow of people from Ukraine started actually in 1877 when they started uh, going to mines in Pennsylvania and worked there. Then, of course, in World War I and World War II, we've seen two major uh, migration flows out of Ukraine. And uh, as well as in 2008 and 2009, uh, almost one million people uh, left the country due to the uh, financial crisis and of course in 2014 after the next, uh, after Putin annexed Crimea um, a huge amount of people left Ukraine uh, of course to Poland so we see that migration uh, in Ukraine is not something uh, unprecedented the OECD places Ukraine in the seventh place in the top 20 countries in the world that produce um, 
the biggest amount of international migrants and actually 18% of Ukrainians work or have worked abroad at least on a temporary basis and other than being refugees uh, um, and not economic migrants uh, this time in 2022 um, before they used to be usually males uh, 61% of them well as uh, Sofia has reported us now we have uh, a 90% of women and children so we see different kind of demographics uh, today but um, we see this kind of patterns uh, because um, uh, we have a re- Ukrainian diaspora we have um, the, the Ukrainian population has family uh, more or less um, everywhere in, in in Europe so these refugees already know where to go because they might have family or friends already living abroad and it also makes sense that um, uh, behind Poland the second receiver of migrants after uh, after um, after Poland is Russia because Ukrainians and Russians are populations that are very uh, genetically and biologically integrated with each other with each other so it makes sense that also Russia as an aggressor on that country is uh, a receiver yes thank you very much for these insights both of you so I think now that we have the basis of what's happening now, where are the people actually coming, what are the demographics, and we know how the situation looks like. Um, We can start discussing the measures that the EU put in place and how did the EU and Europe in general react to such a huge crisis. But let's have a small break firstly with the music and then we will dive into the topic.
Welcome everyone, you're listening to Student Radio Maastricht and ECA members talking about the migration crisis following the war in Ukraine. So we already talked about the current situation and the status quo for now, but uh, now Sofia will let us know about the measures that the EU has put in place, about any responses from the EU and basically answering the biggest question, how is the EU tackling the problem? Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, as we said, as fears of a humanitarian disaster grew in the first days of March, uh, the Commission asked the Europeans 27 member states to activate a unique mechanism that would protect all Ukrainians for three years. Um, some European countries have reacted uh, quickly and uh, uniformly to the refugee situation by activating the temporary, temporary protection directive which was inactive since the wars in uh, Yugoslavia and uh, Kosovo in 2001 that me and Federico have already mentioned. Um, as the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen stated in a speech uh, on the measures, Europe stands by those in need of protection. All those fleeing Putin's bombs are welcome in Europe. We will protect those seeking shelter and help those looking for a safe way home. So, as I said, uh, during a meeting on March 4th, uh, the EU ministers unanimously agreed to provide a temporary protection to refugees from Ukraine, since millions of people have uh, left the country. Um, the French interior minister, Gérald Darmanin, uh, said at a press conference after the Council's meeting on March, we did reach an agreement, a historic agreement, that will allow the member states of the EU to grant individuals fleeing from the Ukrainian conflict temporary protection. This is a firm commitment of the EU to show its solidarity with the Ukrainian people given this unjustified war. So, as said, ministers activated this Council Directive of July 2001, which defines uh, the basic requirements for providing temporary protection in the case of a large-scale inflow of displaced people. The measure lasts until the 4th of March of 2023. However, if the reasons for granting temporary protection persist, it will be extended for six months, twice, until March 4th that, in uh, 2024. Overall, the Council Directive specifies measures to promote a balance of efforts among the member states in accepting the refugees coming from Ukraine and also bearing the repercussions of their actions. 
Um, this emergency plan gives the right to Ukrainian migrants to reside and work in Europe for up to three years. And also it provides citizens, Ukrainian citizens, with access to healthcare, housing and education without going through long asylum processes for up to one year. And that status might, might be extended for another two years if the war persists or refugees cannot return safely. Mm, thank you very much for all this information. So can you maybe tell us as well what changes did this temporary directive cause to the issue of migration? Yeah, mm, thank you. Before, um, Ukrainian residents could stay in the European Union for up to 90 days without needing a visa. However, the historical change in the European legislation extends the right to remain, even when the 90-day period has expired. In addition, the European Union seeks to prevent overburdening European uh, EU asylum procedures. In fact, the EU removes the necessity for Ukrainian nationals and permanent residents to apply for asylum and therefore facilitate their entrance in the European Union. Thank you. And how, how does this migration flow differ from the previous ones that we already experienced over the past decades? Yeah, I can answer that maybe. So uh, we see that, um, of course, it is obvious, uh, given that the temporary uh, protection directive has been used, that already this migration flow differs indeed from uh, others. And as Sofia uh, pointed out previously, uh, this directive was adopted in 2001 and uh, it has been used for this first time only now and between 2001 and today we had quite uh, a lot of migrants uh, coming in and this kind of protection has never been provided by the by, by the EU and uh, but to understand um, more in depth uh, how it differs um, I would like to focus on one concept and it is the concept of border so lately in 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 the last decades uh, because of globalization increased uh, cross-border trade and European integration the Schengen area of course we had a debordering effect so um, people leave uh, live in increasingly uh, networked societies and uh, not anymore in isolated national communities and this makes borders more permeable uh, but then when we look at migration we have a rebordering um, effect and we can look at one example uh, the, the mainstream example would be uh, you know the 2015 migration crisis uh, but I would like to focus on another one it, it was last summer summer 2021 when Poland Lithuania and Latvia faced uh, an increasing number of people in coming from Belarus because Lukashenko uh, I'm sure you remember uh, picked up all these people from Africa and the Middle East and as, um, uh, put them on a plane to Belarus and then push them to uh, the borders uh, of Eastern Europe, uh, um, concretely weaponizing uh, migration. So in an attempt to destabilize European politics, of course. And we 
have to focus on that border and we see that the bird that the border first of all has uh, a securitarian approach not a humanitarian one why does it have a securitarian approach because the border first of all is sacralized we have in belarus uh, migrants uh, that are connected to islam and uh, we have in europe a significant degree of islamophobia while um, what the ones coming from ukraine's are christian christian Orthodox, so uh, very much closer to us. Uh, other than being sacralized, the border is racialized. So we have bi- biological racism uh, against uh, against this um, this migrants from Africa and the Middle East, while Ukrainians are pretty much like biologically closer to us. Thirdly, the border is gendered. In Belarus, uh, we saw mostly uh, men um, refugees that were uh, perceived as a threat to security, while um, as we have said, uh, mo- from Ukraine uh, uh, are coming mostly women with children that are perceived as vulnerable, not as a threat. Lastly, uh, the border can be uh, geopoliticized. So we see that migrants that Lukashenko used uh, in Belarus were from Africa and Asia. They, you, they were running away from a threat that is undefined, that is untamed and above all distant from us. While Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians are escaping from something that has a very prominent place in the scale of hostility, namely Russia, plus is something that Poland, Hungary, Slovakia and Romanians um, uh, um, as former communist countries know very, very well. So, uh, of course, this sacralization, racialization and uh, genderization and, of course, geopolitics count as well in it. We see a securitarian approach against migrants. Uh, such as uh, in Belarus or in 2015. Well, now we're we're seeing for Ukrainian a humanitarian approach at the border. So the border is a very important concept, a very important indicator to 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 see how uh, migrants are being um, are being um, treated in the EU. And of course, the EU is adopting uh, double standards in its refugee policies. Refugees uh, from Africa and the Middle East should have the same treatment uh, as uh, Ukrainians and uh, they deserved indeed the, the, the same humanitarian approach and not a securitarian one. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. And concerning that and the different migration crisis that we faced in Europe, I wanted to ask your opinion. Do you think that um, the fact that now there is more humanitarian approach and response to the Ukrainian crisis, will this make a difference for the future for crisis similar to the one on the Belarusian border? As in, will the for example, the Europeans or like the Western side, will they be more humanitarian or do you think it it wouldn't make a difference if we had another crisis like on the border with Belarus that there's mostly men coming and do you think then what's happening now in Ukraine would make a difference in responses to that or do you think it would still be a securitarian approach? No, indeed, um, we see that... um, now it, it it is hard to say uh here i'm only speculating but um we see also you know right wing politicians um such as uh, the lega in italy or um the front national in france and uh, afd in germany that are refraining for uh, from um condemning 
the um, the inflow uh, of of refugees in in Europe. So I would say that my, here we see a sort of incoherence in their in the, in their discourse and in the policies they want to they want to enact because uh, of course. Um, there is the um, uh, Refugee Convention in adopted in 1951 that gives the same definition from uh, as a refugee uh, for everybody, no matter their skin color, their religion, um, their uh, provenance, their um, their sex. So we see that here uh, they really used to discriminate. Um, um, migrants coming from Africa and the Middle East. So I would say that I cannot claim whether mm -hmm. this is a complete, uh, you know, U-turn in uh, the trend um, um, in migration policy uh, in the EU. But of course, uh, we are at a turning point. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I agree. Sofia, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that Federico was very clear in explaining this difference that has happened um, be across the different uh, migration crises in the last uh, decade. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to think about this issue and controversy. But at the same time, I think it has been, yeah, it is, it is changing the situation, as Federico said. And hopefully, yeah. yeah, things are gonna change yeah. in the future. Hopefully for the better. So I think that's the good point to conclude this section and we will talk about more European initiatives after a break.
Hello everyone, welcome back. Um, before we were discussing with Federico and Elisa uh, from the Blue and Yellow blog team of ECA here in Maastricht, the migration crisis from Ukraine and how the European Union is dealing with it. Um, before I mentioned that the European Union has, uh, in order to counteract the refugee crisis, has activated the Temporary Protection Directive 
Um, but the European Union has also um, taken more European uh, initiatives, more initiatives. For example, on March 28, uh, an interior ministers from across the European Union gathered for an extraordinary justice and home affairs council. Uh, there, they considered several measures to help strengthen the European Union cooperation. And these proposals uh, include using the EU uh, LISA agency, which coordinates the IT systems governing asylum and migration policy to improve the registration processes across European countries. Uh, it deals with developing, uh, for example, transport hubs uh, for refugees and devising an European Union anti-trafficking plan. Also, uh, ministers propose more help for Moldova, uh, which is a non-European country bordering Ukraine on the front line of the so-called migration crisis. Um, but something that uh, also uh, strikes my attention is that the European Union put in place more than 20 billion, 20 billion of euros of EU funds to help Ukrainian refugees. And this funding will ensure that the member states hosting refugees have the resources to fulfill rising housing, education and healthcare demands. Um, also, the Council enacted a rule on the cohesion action for refugees in Europe on April 4th, uh, 2022, enabling the reallocation of cohesion policy financing. Uh, it was around uh, 16.5 uh, European billion uh, euro, uh, euro, sorry. Um, and mm, also the Council approved the new regulations that would let the member states contribute more to the 2021-2027 Asylum Migration and Integration Fund. Um, and finally, uh, another thing that uh, we should take attention, per, yeah, put attention to is that the Council adopted a preliminary rule authorizing an additional 3.5 billion of euros to be dispersed immediately under the recovery assistance for cohesion, um, the so-called REACT EU. So all of these measures always make me very positive about the positive European initiatives and impact that European Union overall is making to counteract the refugee crisis. But maybe Federico, you have something to add to this. Yes, Sofia. Indeed, uh, we should have some optimism for uh, the refugee policy of the EU in the future. And of course, as we were uh, saying before, we see differences with previous reaction to uh, migration crisis. We see a willingness to cooperate at the European level. We see ministers ready to adopt a common framework. And, um, if you look at the conclusions of the Home Affairs Council meeting of the 24th, 25th of March, uh, uh, they plan to adopt a new platform, a new platform for uh, registration, uh, coordination for transport and information hub, as well as um, a system to map the reception capacity and uh, accommodation. So we see uh, we it is inevitable that we're going in the direction of uh, a common um, asylum application procedure uh, for the EU. Uh, so I would say that um, 
we could be at the beginning of the Euro Europeanization of refugee policy. So uh, um, adopt, uh, manage refugee policy at the European level uh, in order to avoid, as we were saying earlier, double standards. So the fact that we treat migrants from Ukraine differently, uh, sorry, refugees from Ukraine differently um, from um, the ones from the Middle East and uh, Africa and also avoid condemnation by the European court, uh, Courts of uh, Human Rights. I would like to remember that it has ruled several times against the pushbacks practiced by uh, Europe, EU member states and their unwillingness to give refugee uh, status to um, asylum applicants, uh, even if they're obliged to do so under the Re Refugee Convention of 1951. And uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. We have this uh, this kind of um, push towards uh, uh, the supranational level of refugee policy, and but also we need to to look below at the local level. So before I was doing a differentiation between a securitarian and humanitarian approach. And it's not only states that are uh, approaching uh, refugees uh, in a humanitarian way now, uh, but we have coordination at all level of uh, governance, at the uh, European, at the national one, at the regional, at the, at the local level, but also intersectoral cooperation. So between public sector, private sector and civil society, we have the business community in Poland that proposed uh, a management model based on efficiency and effectiveness to actually allocate and distribute migrants, uh, sorry, uh, Ukrainian refugees better. And as well, we have NGOs that provided uh, knowledge of social problems and uh, possibility of discrimination or mental health issues um, that were uh, that were previously um, unknown or uh, underestimated by the government. So we see how the dysfunctionalities of the state uh, were um, are assisted by uh, non-governmental action and by an increased level of engagement and social capital. So yeah, we see a positive response by the member states, but also by uh, civil, society, civil society and a more positive uh, popular attitude. Yes, indeed. Um, I think that uh, you wrapped everything up very well. Uh, thank you. Um, we can then have a short break and then wrap up all yeah, what we have been discussing today in a couple of minutes.
So welcome back to Student Radio Maastricht. You're listening to uh, ECA, European Care- Careers Association Maastricht. Uh, we are uh, Sofia, Federico and Elisa from uh, Blue and Yellow, um, the ECA's blog. We're, we have been talking about uh, the migration crisis that um, derived from uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So um, we're in the final section now. Sofia, do you want to give us uh, a summary and an overview of uh, everything we've said so far? Yes, with pleasure. Uh, so um, the EU has taken, as we've said throughout this session, uh, tangible steps to assist Ukraine and its neighbors in providing safety to refugees uh, escaping the f- conflict. Uh, in Ukraine, but the road ahead uh, will be hard. Uh, Previous refugee influxes, such as the one in 2015, when over a million people crossed the Mediterranean to reach Europe, sparked um, political disputes uh, that exposed the EU's fragility and that we've been talking about it before. Um, This time, instead, the bloc is at is at its best, uh, demonstrating a blend of compassion and practicality that few would have predicted. And although the current events pose a significant challenge to the European community, they have made apparent how the humanitarian response to such an emergency can and should be in the future. Um, So in practice, warm food, blankets, Wi-Fi, free Uber rides and lodging in people's homes are offered to migrants in nations like Poland um, and other European countries. So so after all of these positive aspects, maybe uh, Federico, you can tell us which challenges for the future the European Union has. Yes, indeed. Uh, in the future, there. Thank you for these questions. There, there are going to be uh, a lot of challenges. Um, indeed, we've been very positive um, and optimistic uh, today. But it is important to uh, rem- uh, to think about the fact that um, this reaction from the EU uh, has been unprecedented and uh, we have no previous example of generosity so uh, we have to see whether 
this kind of um, uh, humanitarian approach is going to be maintained. So first of all, as a challenge, we have education. Um, uh, we should organize uh, classes in Ukrainian for Ukrainian kids so that they can keep learning on the basis of uh, Ukrainian school programs, uh, but also education for adults. Uh, universities could offer scholarships uh, not only to university students that fled uh, Ukraine, but also moms. There are a lot of uh, moms with their kids uh, and they have to stay here for quite some time. So it is worth to start a bachelor uh, degree and acquire skills. So through education, it is possible to invest in Ukraine and invest in Ukraine's uh, reconstruction and future um, already today. Uh, other than uh, through education, of course, other than education, we have to face, uh, we will have to face mental health issues in the future. Uh, it has been already partly addressed um, at the borders. You can find numerous psychologists that give assistance, but still um, in the long term, we will see among Ukrainian refugees, post-traumatic stress disorders after the war, of course, depression, as well as separation anxiety because families have been uh, forced to split and also uh, a common tendency after an armed conflict is an increased rate of substance and alcohol um, abuse uh, of course and thirdly i would say a, a major uh, challenge uh, ahead will be uh, employment. So uh, we see how um, we, we need to allocate refugees in the different national labor markets in the EU. So, um, so far it has been uh, easy um, because like many countries in the East face labor shortage, like, uh, we need to uh, we need to see whether uh, this does not remove jobs to the local population. Thank you very much. And that concludes our visit here to the Student Radio Maastricht. We come from ECA Maastricht from the Blue and Yellow Block. And thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much for coming by. And I think we have just about enough time to announce two events coming up. One is tomorrow by Solomon Gambia, 16th of this month at LBB at 9 o'clock, where he'll be releasing his new album. Well, it is to be released on the 18th, so you can get a free Oh, not a free, well, a donation-based uh, early preview. And the second one is by Moza Musica, who's letting us use our music uh, that you're hearing in the background right now. Um, yeah, they have an event at Il Cavo on Saturday with uh, with live DJs. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When the ghost starts getting tough, it starts thinking about getting